thank you so much uh, that we can gather in your name and uh, that we can, those of us who've trusted your son Jesus as Savior can be called by your name, that you've adopted us into your family, that you care for us, that you give us access to all of your spiritual power and wealth and all the things that are there, and they, they can be experienced by us. And Father, in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our junk, that you love us. Thank you for that. And God, I pray that you would uh, meet with us today as a father. Um, thank you so much for being such a loving father and uh, sending your son and giving us your spirit. And uh, I pray that we would encounter you as we open up your word. I pray you would remove whatever might be on our hearts and our minds right now. And let us have these moments with you, just a, a safe spot where you put a hedge of protection on this room from the enemy's attack, from deception, from lies, from distractions. And that you would speak into our hearts your truth from your word and uh, guide us in your truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I don't know what questions you asked this week, whether they were directions to get to a place, how to make a recipe, how to, you could be all kinds of different questions. When you think about it, questions are a regular part of our lives. We've been asking them since we were little kids. All of you asked questions when you were little kids. If you have kids, you've heard kids ask questions, but have you thought through the different types of questions that are out there? Probably the most common one that many of us when we're praying to God that we ask is we ask for something. It's a request, a question of request. If you think about kids, they ask, you know, can I have, can I have a snack? Can I have more time on the tablet? Can I have a baby brother? Like whatever, they can be all over the gamut on what the questions might be. But they ask all kinds of questions, and those are questions of request. There's questions of origin. You think about some of the questions of origin. Where did that cow come from? Where did the chicken come from? Well, when they, where did the egg come from? Which one of them came first? Where do babies come from? We've all asked that question. As parents, you, you cringe and think, what am I going to say? When is it? How much is too much information? But let me just tell you this. You need to be ready for the question if you haven't been asked it yet. I can still remember when I asked the question, and my mom, the look on my mom's face, if I remember it correctly, my mom was pregnant for my brother. I'm about seven years older than him, so I was about seven years old. And I looked at my mom and said, you know, where do babies come from? You know, how, how does this happen? And we were eating fish sticks for dinner that night. My mom actually said to me, babies come from eating fish sticks. Which, I don't know, some of you are psychologists, you can tell me if that's why I still hate fish sticks to this day, <laughs> or if it's because they're gross. And I think it's maybe both, combination there. That's not the right answer. Anybody here who's taking notes might be a younger person, that is not the right answer. Feel free to ask your parents afterwards what the right answer is. <laughs> and we have prayer counselors for the parents in the back if you'd like to talk to them. There's questions of origin. There's questions of requests. Think about fish sticks. There's questions, but we get questions, a lot of questions about food as parents. I don't remember if I asked a lot of these when I was a kid, but they'll, you know, like our eggs. Are eggs dead baby chickens that we scramble? No, just eat them. Just stop asking questions. We've got one daughter. I'm pretty confident she's going to be a vegetarian. Uh, she just doesn't choose to eat meat a lot of the times, and she really likes like quinoa and kale, and she prefers salads. It's like, are, are you sure this is my baby? You know, we're talking to Just kidding. I mean, the, uh, we were this week with her. We said to her, um, "Here's some almonds," and she said, "What animal did these come from?" <laughs> no animal. She, I love them. So, we all have questions. It's how you grow. It's how you mature. It's part of growth is asking questions. As adults, our questions change. Uh, we ask different types of questions. What am I supposed to do now? What job should I have? What sh what's the meaning of life? What is my purpose? And how do I do these things? Everyone expects me to do because I do this role or I've got this title or I'm this age. And, and we ask a lot of questions. They're natural that we would ask. There's some questions that we ask that can only be answered by God. In fact, this week on uh, social media, on my Twitter and on my Facebook account, I asked a question to people. If you could ask God one question, what would you ask? And you can go check out the pages if you want to see specific questions that people ask. They put it on the internet, so it's out there. But you'll see there's different types. Some people ask theological questions. Like one guy asked, what happens to babies that are aborted? 
Uh, some people ask questions, maybe because of the method that I was using of social media. You know, what about all this arguing that we do about politics? Are we just wasting our time, God? That's the question that they would ask. Some people ask real personal questions. Why did this situation happen with my mom? Some people ask big questions that probably have underlying things to them. Why do bad things happen? But let me ask you today, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask? And, and if it helps you, like, concrete in your mind, imagine that Jesus was going to be up here after the service. And at the edge of the stage, if, if Jesus were up here at the edge of the stage after the service and you could ask him one question, no follow-up questions, there's too many people in line behind you. So get focused in on what it is. What question would you ask him? What is your question today that you would ask Jesus? You might only get one shot to ask him. And I firmly believe this to be true. The questions that we ask reveal our hearts and they dictate our future. And the reason why I believe they dictate our future is because we'll spend our lives trying to get answers to those questions. And so they dictate a path that we go down in our future. And so the questions we ask, it reveals something about us now, but it also says something about what's going to happen in the days ahead for us. And so what's your one question? I want to encourage you to even write it down. I'm not going to trick you at the end of the message. You know, sometimes people do that kind of thing. It's for you to keep. It's for you to have. But I encourage you to write it down because I'm going to refer to it a couple times throughout the message. And what we're going to do is we get to Mark in Mark chapter 12. We're going to start reading in verse 13 is that uh, we're going to look at three different encounters that Jesus has, and he gets asked three different types of questions. And so what I want you to ask yourself is the question, is my question this kind of, this type of question? So let me promise you, I can almost guarantee you, I'm not going to answer your question today. And I doubt God's going to answer it for you in these moments we're going to share together. In fact, we're not even going to answer, focus so much on how, what the answers were to the questions that the guys ask in the passage. We're going to really focus on their questions, what it reveals about their hearts, and the path that they're headed down. And so what kind of question are you asking? If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be. Please join me there. Mark chapter 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. We're going to go all the way through, Lord willing, verse 34 today. But we're going to take each one of these encounters one at a time. This first one is verses 13 through 17. And if you haven't been with us, what's happening in this, journey, this uh, series that we're doing called Journey to the Cross is that it started back in chapter 11 and verse 1. And it's the last week in the life of Jesus. And, and on Sunday, what happens is he comes into this town, oftentimes people call it Palm Sunday, and, and people lay down palm branches and coats, and they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And we saw that Jesus' journey to the cross is a journey not just to joy, like a joyful moment, like happiness in that situation, but to lasting, to real lasting joy. And then the next day, on Monday, he comes into, he's coming back into Jerusalem again, he curses a fig tree, and then he flips over tables in the temple and calls what they're doing from Jeremiah chapter 7, a den of robbers. That they're saying, the temple, the temple, the temple. They're hiding. They've got this false security and their empty religion. And Jesus rebukes their empty religion. We saw that the journey to the cross is a journey to end empty religion and to deliver authentic relationship. And then we saw after that, what we looked at last week when we were together as a church family, still on, was on Tuesday, that some of the guys were upset that Jesus had done that on Monday. The guys that are often considered the authority, the Sanhedrin, the teachers of law, the chief priests, the elders. And so they come and they confront Jesus about his authority. And we saw what Jesus exposes in them is their people-pleasing and their control issues. But they're not done. They send some other groups to ask Jesus some questions. And that's what we're going to see today as these different groups come to Jesus and ask different kinds of questions. The first one appears to be about government. Let's look at it. It's in Mark chapter 12 and verse 13. It says, later they, they is probably the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law. They sent some, so they probably had a meeting after Jesus confronts them and their authority issues that Jesus actually has all authority, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And their problem is they're not seeking to submit to any of that authority because of their control, because they're people pleasing. So they huddle up, they get some of their friends together. We've got to get rid of this guy. 
Later, they, probably the Sanhedrin, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. So we've got two groups here, Pharisees and Herodians, to Jesus, and Mark gives us commentary, to catch him in his words. Verse 14, they came to him and said, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men, so you're not a people pleaser, because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You tell the truth. Is it right to pay taxes? Here's their question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 15. Should we pay or shouldn't we? Same question twice. And get this. Verse 15. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked, showing them he knows what's going on. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So here's this passage that oftentimes is referred to when you talk about God's role in government and what Jesus answered here. This is not all there is to be said about God's role in government. You see Romans chapter 13 would be another good passage to look at. And God's not against government. He's not saying you rebel against government. Unless it causes you to contradict his word and what he's clearly commanded you, you submit to government, God's put that into place. And so a lot of people go to this passage to teach that, but what I want to look at today is these questions that are asked. And think about these two groups that come, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Them being together for the, a reader, original reader of this passage would be like, what's happening? Something's happening. Why is, why is Coach K coaching the same team as Roy? Like, what doesn't seem, well, how are they together? They're supposed to be rivals. How are the Democrats and Republicans getting along on an issue? Something's wrong here. It's like the Herodians and the Pharisees, the fact that they're together, and then Jesus calls out their question in verse 15 that's a hypocritical question. He knows he's aware of their hypocrisy. He's also aware of ours, just so you know. He sees their hearts, and the way he responds is not just to give them an answer about government. He's exposing their hearts. And here's what we see in this passage, that hypocritical questions reveal hypocritical hearts. Hypocritical questions reveal hypocritical hearts. And these guys come and they ask a hypocritical question. Mark tells us at the very beginning. He sets us off and lets us know. They're coming to catch Jesus in his words. That word for catch is a word that's oftentimes used for catching an animal in a trap. The idea is you use some deception to get there. And you see how they start off. They start off saying, Jesus, you're a man of integrity. That's true. The word integrity, it means wholeness. That he's the same. He will answer one audience the same way that he'll answer another audience. He's not changing based on the situation, based on the circumstances. And so you're, a man, you're not worried about who the people are. You're not a people pleaser. That's true. And then you speak the truth. That's true. It's all true. But we know who they are and we know why they're coming. So what's actually happening here is flattery. And we know the Bible warns against flattery all the time. Some of us have done it. We've received it. If someone's flattering you, it seems nice when they're flattering you. But they're manipulating you, just so you know. They're using you. They're setting you up. And so I've done it before. I was thinking back, when I remember when I was a kid, some of my friends, I don't, this really dates me. In fact, the show that I'm referring to is before my time, for any of you that are wondering how old this guy really is. Eddie Haskell, do you know Eddie Haskell? Okay, okay, a couple of you know who I'm talking about. I remember I'd go to my friend's house, and a lot of times I'd want to hang out at their house, some of us, because what was going on at my house, I didn't want to be there, and try and get to eat meals at their houses and be over their houses. And I remember one friend that I had, I ate so many meals at their house, I probably still owe them money. Uh, they've fed me so much food. But his name was Phil, Phil Adato. And I'd go over to his house and be hanging out there. And Mrs. Adato, you make the best food. What are you making tonight? <laughs> she knew where I was going with this, the situation. And then she'd make, you know, mac and cheese or something. I'd be like, this is the best mac and cheese ever. What is your recipe? Kraft. You picked the best box of Kraft in the whole store. You know, and they told, as I got older, they told me, we saw right through you the whole time. We knew what you were doing. I was setting them up. I was manipulating them. 
And so some of you know that. You see that guy at the office, right? He compliments the boss. He doesn't like what happened at the office. He might not even like the boss, but he compliments the boss because he wants a promotion. Or you see some guys, some guys, they're like the, the ladies' man kind of guy, and they'll say nice things to each girl that they're talking to. It's not because they think nice things, but they want something. That's what these guys are doing. It's flattery. Jesus sees right through it. Mark tells us. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I know your hypocrisy. But Mark tells us. He saw their hypocrisy. He sees ours too. But the reason why this is a hypocritical question is not just because they start with flattery in order to try and trap Jesus. There's more to it than just that. See, our hypocrisy is often, oftentimes we think of hypocrites just as people who say one thing and then do something else. It's far more complicated than that. Their hypocrisy, they start with this flattery and then they ask this question about government and Jesus says, why are you trying to trap me? I realize what you're doing. You see, the issue with the Pharisees, the Pharisees were nationalists. They were Jewish. The Herodians, they worked for Rome. They held the, the Jewish people in oppression. Why are they together? The, the, the Pharisees, they loved God's law. And we see that throughout the scriptures. They memorized the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. They were meticulous in trying to obey all of the scriptures. The Herodians were more of a political party. The very fact that they're together, they both have a different interest. They both want Jesus to answer differently, but both have the common interest. They want Jesus gone. But that's not their hypocrisy. Oh, that's, that's duplicitous. But that's not their hypocrisy. How do they want to trap them? Well, if Jesus answers, yes, you should pay taxes, then all the people that would be in favor of like the Pharisee side, the Jewish people, some of the people that are wishing that Jesus would lead a revolution and would overthrow the Roman government that he's here as a political leader, they're going to think Jesus is a traitor. And they're done with Jesus. If he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, well, the Herodians, they work for Herod, they could arrest him on treason. He's defying the government. They could have him executed. Either way, they, the reason why their question is a hypocritical question is because it's not their real question. They're not really interested in taxes. The tax that's being referred to here is the poll tax. It was a tax uh, that wasn't a lot of money. It was one denarius, uh, uh, the amount of money that it would take for uh, someone who worked in the fields to earn in one day. So even for a field worker, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a large sum of money when you think of all the days that they work, a small percentage of their income. But just a quick survey, how many of you here like paying taxes? Just raise your hand if there's anyone here who enjoys taxes. Okay, there's one guy in the back. He works for the IRS. Everybody can talk to him after the service. Most people don't like paying taxes. But the issue here was not the amount of money that you paid in paying this tax. The issue was by paying the tax, you were acknowledging Rome's authority, Rome's rule in your life. You were submitting to that authority. So all the Jews were against this. But not all the Herodians. But the issue wasn't here whether to pay taxes or not pay taxes. If these guys were asking a real question, it's this. Why don't you go away, Jesus? Why don't you leave us alone? Why don't you let us lead our own lives? Things were real comfortable until you came along. Why, we're wanting to get you to leave the real question there something else. And we've all seen that before, right? Like if you've spent any time in a classroom, you've all had that, and maybe you're this person and you can just repent of it in this moment right now. But you've seen the people in the classroom that will ask a question. They're not really asking a question. They're trying to show you how much they know. Oh, professor, here's the thing. The diatribe of information, and somehow it ends with a question mark, right? Or do you agree with me? Do you want to get somebody to agree with somebody? Or have you ever had somebody ask you this question? Who do you think you are? They don't really want your name and address and phone number. That's not a real question. This, what they're asking is not a real question. That's what a hypocritical question is. And many of us do that. And I want to say, what I'm about to say to you, I've prayed that I would say with prophetic boldness, that I would not hesitate on confronting sin, but pastoral sensitivity. 
Because here's one of those moments where when you speak from up front and you're speaking to a bunch of different people, everybody hears it differently. And I'm going to confront some questions here in a moment that for a few of you, they might be your real questions. But for some of you, they're not. And you know they're not. Some of you ask questions like, how is God a good God? And then you'll go to a passage of scripture. Well, wipes out the Amalekites. Does some, what does something you don't think is good? But that's not your real question. Your real question is why he didn't do something in your life that you wanted done. If God's not really that powerful because, and you come up with some, something that's happened in society, something that's going, but your real thing is he's not doing what you want him to do. He didn't heal some disease. He didn't reconcile some relationship. So then that's a fake question you're asking. Ask the real question. Why did my mom die this way? Why did this happen? How come? Those are real questions. The other questions are hypocritical questions because they're not the real question. Some people ask questions and they're really a shield from their sin. And sometimes they're theology. And so people hide behind theology. They use God to actually hide from God. You see it in John chapter 4. There's a woman. uh, She comes to the well in the middle of the day and Jesus is there. And she starts asking questions about worship as if she's really worried about like styles of worship and location of worship. And then Jesus finally calls her out on it and says, listen, your issue is not where you should attend worship, which mountain you should be on. You, you've had five guys that are your husband. The guy you're currently living with is not your husband. You've got a sin issue, lady. So he gets right, he goes through the smoke screen. And says, we're, not, we're not dealing with your hypocritical questions. Let's talk about the truth. And some of us, we don't ask real questions. Some of us think because we're shielding God from them. Let me just share with you, God can handle your honest questions. If he couldn't, then a lot of the Psalms wouldn't be in the Bible. Okay, it's God's word. Have you read some of the Psalms? Have you seen some of the questions that are in there? I mean, Jesus wasn't the first one to ask, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. And the psalmist says, where are you at, God? Seems like you're not even here. She's there, but from the perspective of the person that's asking the question, it sure feels like that's an honest question. Psalm 44, let me read you a verse from Psalm 44. Psalm 44, verses 22 and 23. Say, awake, O Lord, <laughs> as if he's sleeping. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Is he rejecting them? Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Another one, Psalm 77. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? He ran out of love. He just doesn't even have enough love anymore. Has his promise failed for all time? He doesn't keep his promises. Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Well, how can you have verses like this in the Bible? And then there's other verses that say, abounding in love, slow to anger, all kinds of compassion. Those are asking a real question. They're asking their real questions. So sometimes we don't ask our real questions, and, and here's the reason. Some of us, we're, we're, we, don't, we don't want to deal with our sin. We're holding on to our sin. I remember one of the most honest moments I've ever had with another human being was in seminary. I had this one friend, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. And we would talk about the script. Is the Bible really God's word? Is it really without error? And we'd go to these passages, and there'd be these passages that we'd discuss and debate back and forth. And then finally one day he said, you know, bottom line is, Scott, is this. I don't want to obey it. That's honest. Arguing about whether this is a difficult passage and that's tr- how do you figure it, how do you reconcile, that's not honest when the real issue is I just don't want to submit. And I know there are some men in our church that have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ and their real issue is they love their sin more than they're attracted to God. But they'll play games with other people. 
and say things like, well, what, how do you do that? What do you do with it? And it's the, they're using theology to hide from God. God, let me tell you something. Those are hypocritical questions. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, your hypocritical questions reveal your hypocritical heart and lead to a path of destruction. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're down a path of discipline. So be honest with God. And so what Jesus does with these guys is, is he does answer their question. He doesn't give them just a yes or no, but he answers their question and he allows them to reveal their own hearts. He says, why are you trying to trap me? That word is actually the same word that's used in Mark chapter 1 and verse 13 about Satan testing, tempting Jesus. He asks, and then here's how he shows. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they didn't have to go out on a search mission to find a denarius. Notice Jesus doesn't offer one from his own pocket. He says, why don't you go get a denarius? They have one. Do you know what they're showing? We already submit to the Roman government. We're using their money. We're cool. We've already answered our own question. We're fine with this. And the reason why Jews would have a hard time with some of these coins is because they were basically portable idolatry. They'd have a picture of Caesar on them, and they would say things like, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So son of God. So he's the son, he is deity. Emperor worship. But they had a coin. And then Jesus answers and says to them, whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Okay. It's his image. It's his coin. It says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give him his coin back. He wants his idols? Give him his idols back. You decide. You're going to benefit from the economy that's happening in this culture using his money. He wants a portion of it back. His rules? Give him the money back. And don't miss the second part. And to God, what is God's? So the coin has Caesar's image on it. What has God's image on it? We do. Genesis 127. He's saying here, and we'll get to this more when we get to the last question. He wants not just your money. He wants all of you. Have you given your life to him is what he's really presenting to these guys. He's confronting the hypocrisy of their hearts. They just want Jesus gone. Hypocritical questions reveal hypocritical hearts. The next section here, we see this next question is verses 18 through 27. And what we see here is that ignorant questions reveal shallow hearts. Ignorant, unknowing, they don't, they don't know, misinformed, uninformed questions. Ignorant questions reveal shallow hearts. In verse 18, the next group that comes is the Sadducees. It says, then the Sadducees, man, am I going to do it again, Lee? You were in here first service. First service, I debated about whether this cheesy pastor joke, I say it every time I talk about the Sadducees. You see, the reason why the Sadducees are sad, you see. <laughs> see, I did it. I did it. Every time. I wasn't planning on doing it before today, and I just did it. The real reason why they're sad, Mark tells us next, is because they believe in no resurrection. And there's more to know about them. They, they really only believe in the, the first five books of the Bible, or at least the first five books are really authoritative, not the prophets and the other parts of the Old Testament as much. Uh, we learn later in the book of Acts that they don't believe in angels, which is really ironic. Listen closely to how Jesus answers their question. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, Mark gives us that commentary, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said. We're going to give you a scenario here. It's like this, this question reminds me of a story question when you're taking a standardized test. Train A leaves the train station at this, then train B comes, and train C, and I'm like, who's where? What? I like had to read these a bunch. Pete comes in, then repeat, and then there's three Pete, and then who's on third? I don't know. Look at this question. Moses wrote for us, and this is a reference to Deuteronomy 25, a law that would protect widows from financial disaster. That if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, here's the scenario. There were seven brothers. The first one married, died without leaving any children. 
The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, which remember they don't believe in, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were all married to her? And Jesus replied, you're asking a bad question. Are you not in error? Because, and he says, you're ignorant. You're ignorant because you do not know the scriptures, first thing you're ignorant of, or the power of God, second thing you're ignorant of. And then he goes on to answer the question. When the dead rise, and so if you're wondering if Jesus believes in the resurrection, he does. In fact, up to this point in Mark, he's already prophesied his own resurrection three times. And he says, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priest, teacher of the law, the elders. I'm going to be murdered, and then I'm going to rise on the third day. He says, when the dead rise, and he says here, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Poking, poking their spot right there. They don't believe in angels. Now, I'm going to pause right here and just say, because I know some of you, if I don't address this, you'll have a hard time listening to the rest of what was actually being taught here. Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven. And some of you are happily married and may even be tempted to think to yourself, I don't know if I want to go there. <laughs> Let me promise you what Jesus is not saying here. He's not telling you about the things you're going to miss out on in heaven. Heaven's not going to be worse than this place. What he's confronting here is their inability to even think beyond, this is their shallow hearts, this earthly way of thinking. Their way of thinking about the afterlife is just a continuation of this life, maybe an improved version. We don't know all the details about what heaven's going to be like, but there's a lot that is said in the scriptures, and we know it's going to be better. We know there's not going to be any sin. Apparently, we're going to be able to relate with one another on a level that we can't even fathom right now. And so the problem for these guys is they couldn't even grasp the idea that God could do whatever he wanted. They're ignorant of the power of God. They're ignorant of the resurrection that even happens. And he's saying at the resurrection, it's going, to be so, it's going to be so different than anything that you could imagine. He's not telling us here what we're going to miss out on. He's saying it's otherworldly. And then he goes and he, he confronts them and, and tells them from their book, from one of their books about the resurrection. He could have gone to a lot of places in the Old Testament. The book of Job, you can teach the resurrection from the book of Job. From the Psalms, you can teach the resurrection from the Psalms. The book of Daniel, you can teach the resurrection from there. But instead, he goes to the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, the first five books, the second book. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read, which would be insulting, like these guys, they have read the Bible. They know the verses. In fact, these guys are some of the most conservative of any of the groups. So if you think you're right just because you're conservative, there should be a warning here. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, so that's the first five books, in the account of the bush, which is a weird way to refer to a verse for us, we'd say Exodus 3 is what he's talking about. They didn't have chapters and verses in the original, in the original version of the, of the Bible. So this is a normal way to say it. And the passage about the bush, in the book of Moses, second book, your book, you know the passage about the bush, God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he goes on, he gives commentary. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. You are badly mistaken. You've got an erroneous question. You're asking a bad question. It's going to send you down a bad path. You're ignorant in your question. You're ignorant of the scriptures, your own scriptures. Because he could have gone to all these different passages. And he's pointing out here, God, he's, and the significance of that passage is this. Jacob's been dead for a long time. Isaac's been dead for a long time in Exodus 3. Abraham's been dead for a long time. And God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. He says, I am. They're still with, we still have a relationship. They're not with you anymore, but they're with me. 
I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God of the living and not the dead. But their problem was they were ignorant of their own scriptures. And so when you think about your question, I would just ask you the question, has God actually already answered it in the Bible? Are you ignorant of the Scripture? I think we've all done this before. We've all had experiences where we ask questions and God's already given the answer. And I was was thinking through this passage this week. I was reminded of an experience I had with the Lord recently where I I I got down on my knees and I'm praying and I'm confessing sin. And I said, God, will you forgive me of my sins? And I like waited. Almost as if I was waiting for like an audible response or some impression, like something to happen to affirm that you'd forgive me. And then I felt convicted. We've already answered that, Scott. It's at 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, I'm faithful, I'm just, I'll forgive you of your sins. He's already told me he'll forgive me of my sins. So it's like saying, hey, why don't you stop asking if I will and start confessing? And what about for you, though? Do you ask questions where if, if, you, if you really looked at the Scripture, you'd already know the answer? And sometimes we ask those questions, and the, the answer is we need to be studying our Bibles. And so what does, it, what does it mean to study your Bible? I remember as a new Christian, when somebody would say study, I'd feel intimidated. Like, I don't know if I study that. I read the Bible. I don't know if I study the Bible. And I remember one, and fi- finally in seminary, I heard a professor say, you know the difference between reading your Bible and studying your Bible is this. When you read your Bible, you're just reading through the Bible. When you study your Bible, you've got a pen in your hand. And you write down questions. And, and, and you write down observations. And you write down answers. And, and you're, you're writing things down. And usually the answers actually come. Because I'd think, well, how many books do I need out? And what other books do I need to write? Background and history and, and all that stuff's helpful. But a lot of times your questions that you have about the verse are actually within the verses. One of the reasons why I say it's important for you to have your own Bible to ask yourself, is what he's saying? Is that really what this passage is saying? And where I'm saying this part from, if you want to ask me that question right now, is you don't know the scriptures, he says to them. Then look at the next part. Or the power of God. You don't know... You don't know what the scriptures really say or you're interpreting them incorrectly because they probably knew the bush story. They didn't realize that God was saying, I am, present tense. Or experientially, you don't know the power of God. And so do you? Because if our view of God is too small, then of course we're going to live shallow lives. Of course everything's going to be based on here. And of course we're going to come to the scriptures and we're already looking for it as like, what are the principles of the book? How can I make my finances better? How can this marriage be improved? How can I be a good guy? Rather than realizing who we're actually dealing with. This powerful God. Do you realize the power of God? And I was thinking about how do I, how do I illustrate the power of God to these folks? How do I share this? And I talk about the healings or you know, stuff we see in Scripture. Parting the Red Sea. Your salvation would be one way. Miracles that we see. And I've seen that stuff happen. But as I was reflecting this week, I started to think about simple provisions. I was reminded of a story I recently shared with our staff. And uh, we recently got a new dog in our staff meeting. We were just, you know, friendly talking, talking about dogs. I started sharing with them the best dog that I've ever met in my life. And it happened when I was in church planting school. And what happened for Shannon and I is we were living in Dallas, Texas, when God first called us to come plant this church. And then we got called uh, by a, a place that was training up church planters to come and live at their, their place, but it was in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I remember, it's like, can anything good come from Little Rock? And when they called us, I said to Shannon, I said, I don't even know if we should call them back. Like, I know we don't want to live in Arkansas, but we did. And it was a blessing, but there were some hard parts about it. Sold our house in Texas. We move up here to live there for 11 months, which is kind of weird on a lease, if you think about that. And so we looked at some apartments, but I came across this one opportunity to live on this property. There was a really nice house on this property, and the guy who owned the property lived in that house, and there was a guest house that we could live in. And the deal was, if I worked as a ranch hand on this property, I could work down the rent. (laughs) Now, if anybody knows me, you, Janine, you know, you know, I got a lot of stories from this experience. 
chopping wood, damaging this guy's truck. I had to pay to fix the truck. I just get the eyes a mess. Losing money working is not a good idea. Uh, doing all kinds of. I remember the first time the guy asked me uh, to dig a trench. I said, "What's a trench?" Like I didn't even know what a trench. I didn't know how to use Google at that point. Like that. I didn't even know how to do that. But I remember when we first moved into this house, the house wasn't even ideal for us. Shannon was really pregnant at the time when we got there. And, and we had, it was on a second story was where our bedroom was at. And you had to go outside to get to the bedroom. So, and in Arkansas, actually, there is ice and snow and there's dust blowing. It was a mess going in and out of this place. It wasn't even totally safe for us to do this deal. But we're there. The first night we move in, we get into the bedroom. It's raining outside. We got all of our furniture into this guest house. And I go look outside the door and there's this dog sitting outside the door. Her name's Napa. She's uh, part beagle and part shepherd. At the time, I didn't hate dogs. I wasn't against dogs, but I wasn't really like a dog. Like, I love dogs now. I wasn't really like a dog person. Napa's a big part of me becoming a dog person. And I'm thinking, it's raining out. You're not coming in here and getting our stuff all messy. You'll go back up to the house in a little while. Wake up the next morning. She slept outside our door through, through the rain the whole night. Stayed there. The guy who owned the house wasn't there. He wasn't on the property at the time. And uh, start to develop this relationship with this dog. One time I'm out running. It's a rural area, and I'm running, and these two stray dogs start coming up. And they're gnarly, nasty looking. Probably haven't eaten in a while. Probably thinking about me and not eating in a while. Napa comes up, and I don't know what happens. She distracts them, gets them to chase her through the property. While I go back up to the house, and I'm safe. I don't know what I don't know what she did. Great dog though. One time I'm was the first time. One of my jobs was to to weed whack this creek bed, but no one had done it in a long time. It was my first time doing it. And I hate weed whackers, just a general truth uh, for anyone. If anyone here can create string on a weed whacker that doesn't tangle up and doesn't break all the time, I will rise up and call you blessed in front of our whole church. It's a promise. <laughs> but I'm trying to weed whack, and the weeds are like three, four feet high. And I'm going through, so the base of some of them are like tree stumps. And so I'm weed whacking. It breaks. About every 30 seconds, I'm stopping. I'm fixing the string on the weed whacker. One time, I'm fixing the string on the weed whacker, and I look over, and something is coming towards me through the weeds. And so it's like in the movies, it's like, like just, and I'm thinking, where am I going to, I'm dead. Like, I'm, here I am. Like, what am I going to do? And then out of nowhere, root, root, Napa jumps in there, comes out bloody. I don't know what it was, but thank you, Napa. And I think about all the experiences I had on that property, how many times I was complaining, cursing this job, why was I doing that? Like, all the stuff that was happening there, and I missed what God was doing. He's providing for me in, in small ways. He's protecting me. You sent a silly dog. He's reminding me of his presence. And I think, I can tell you a story about like healing. I can tell you a story, like you think about your own salvation or the resurrection or, or one of those things. But how many times are we so focused on what we want God to do that we miss what he's actually doing? How much power did it take for God? Like think about Julianne shared that she had a rough week. She's still saved today. God kept her saved this week. Protect it. I'm, I'm looking around at you all. I can't see every person the way the light hits my eyes, but most of you, you're all dressed, I think. <laughs> God provided for you this week. This provision that you have breath, that you have clothes. Most of you probably have a meal after you leave here today. What about his Are you ignorant of his power? And maybe it's because you're ignorant of the scriptures. Maybe it's because you're, not, you're so focused on what you want him to do, and he's not doing that. He's not healing the person you want him to heal. He's not reconciling the relationship. You're missing the power of what he is doing. Are you ignorant of his power? Because then we ask ignorant questions that lead to shallow lives, that are earthly-focused lives. Do you realize you are a refugee in this place? You're not citizens of heaven. This is not your, or you're not citizens of this earth. You're citizens of heaven. This place is not your home. You're visiting here. But we get so focused here that we, we become ignorant of God and we make God small and we make his power small and we, 
We get ignorant of the scriptures and of course we ask bad questions and then we go down a bad path, a shallow life. That's the path. Then there's a third question that we see in this, in this passage of scripture. And this one's unlike the other ones. First of all, it's not a group of people that comes, it's one guy. And I'm going to tell you, I'm gonna, I'll read you this verse, verse 28 in a second. I'm going to tell you why I think what I think about this passage, but I, I don't think this guy was planning on asking a question. I think he sees the way that, I think he came planning to watch a show. I think he was part of the, the group that probably came up with plans of how we're going to trap Jesus. So first of all, we're going to start off with this question about the Daenerys, and we're going to ask this question about the taxes, and then we got him trapped no matter which way he answers. But if somehow he gets out of that, then we're going to come and we're going to ask this question about the resurrection, and he's got to isolate people in, in that situation. And I think this guy sees how Jesus answers, and, and he comes and he asks a real question. I think he asks the kind of question that probably many of you wrote down when we were starting this sermon. I think it's a sincere question. A sincere question that's seeking God. And what sincere questions reveal is sincere questions reveal submissive hearts. And we see that in the way this guy responds to after Jesus gives his answer. Sincere questions reveal submissive hearts. And I wonder if your question is a sincere question. Now, it could be a sincerely ignorant question or a sincerely hypocritical question. That's not what I'm saying. It's a sincere God-seeking question. It says, one of, not the group of, one of, notice this next part, the teachers of the law. Now it'll become significant in just a moment. But remember who the teachers of the law are. The teachers of the law are part of the Sanhedrin. They question Jesus' authority. That are trying to kill Jesus. Remember when Jesus prophesied, I'm going to be handed over to who? Chief priests, elders, teachers of the law. These guys are opponents of Jesus every time we see them, but this one guy. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. So I think he was there for a show. Notice that Jesus had given them a good answer. And he asked him. So I think what happened in this guy's heart is it's like if Jesus were sitting up here, right? I got one shot. I don't care what happens. I'm asking my question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? See, the teachers of the law had determined that there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And they decided that the, which ones were positive, which ones, you know, positive command is go do this. Negative command is don't do this. Which ones are positive, which ones are negative. And they would debate. And so this guy's probably, since he's a little boy, been debating which is the weightiest, which is the most, because if I'm going to disobey one, I don't want to disobey the biggest one. So he's at, which is the most important? Verse 29, you may have heard this before. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. And he, he gives a verse here from Deuteronomy that, ironically, this man's probably wearing on his body in what's called a phylactery, a little leather box that would hold the verse. They refer to this as the Shema because the first word is here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here's the command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So what version Jesus was quoting from can be debated because not every version says strength, not every version says mind, and maybe it was the message, I don't know. Write a note to Jesus if you want to know. And then the guy only asked for one command, but Jesus gives the bonus material here in verse 31. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And you've probably heard this before, you know, love, the biggest, most important thing, love God, love other people. The way that you know if you love other, love other people it's the way you live with those other people. You love them like you'd love yourself, like you'd want to be loved if you were in their situation. And it is possible to love other people and not love God, but it's not possible to love God and not love other people. And, and what you'll hear taught sometimes from this passage, it's really erroneous. It's really an American way to teach the passages. And here's what it means to love God with your heart. It's the center of the will. And so it's the emotions. And here's to love God with your strength. It's the people that you do something. And we're so compartmentalized and so 
you know, specialized in the way that we do stuff as Americans. It's like, well, I'm really good at doing stuff, but I'm not always good at the emotional part. And I'm really good with, you know, whatever. We fit these things. And you miss the whole point of the passage. Sometimes it's quoted with mind and soul and strength. And sometimes it doesn't say mind. And some, so it's not that the mind is unimportant. It's, the point is, and the emphasis is on all. All your heart. All your mind. All your strength. All of who you are. It's all inclusive. It goes back to Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. What's God's? You. All of you. Not just part of you. And if this is the most important commandment, do you know what the greatest sin is? It's not murder. It's not adultery. It's to fail to keep this commandment. How can anyone keep this commandment? And how can you command emotions? How can you command me to love? I mean, either you like, you want something, you don't want, how do you, how can you make me love something? Well, here's the, you got to go back to what we just talked about. You understand the scriptures, you understand the power of God. Do you know who it is that we're talking about? Because sometimes when we talk about God, some people think it's a higher power. You don't fall in love with a higher power. You might really love Star Wars. You don't fall in love with the force. You don't fall in love with principles. Those of us who treat the Bible like it's just steps to living. And if I just work the formula, then I'd be, you know, it's all about a being. It's all about a person. It's all about a father who's a loving father who loves you unlike your father could have possibly loved you. And so we hear father and sometimes that messes us up because we have messed up dads. But he's a father. He loves you. You're like a runaway kid and he keeps coming after you. And he's, th- and he's present and he protects you and he guides you and you make dumb decisions but it could have been worse and he was guiding you. Even in your rebellion, he's guiding you and he's loving you and every time you turn back, he's there and then you go off and you cheat on him again and he's there and he's faithful and he's pursuing and he pursued you so much that he sent his only son for you that he'd pour out his, he's still righteous and he's still just and he's still transcendent and he pours out his wrath on his son to pay a ransom for your sins. So that in all your guilt, he could say to you, not guilty, There's no condemnation for those who are in my son, Christ Jesus. And I love you so much, I'm going to send my spirit to live within you. You talk about intimacy. Yeah, I know when you're hypocritical, I know everything about you. I know your thoughts before you think your thoughts. That's how personal he is. And how do we love him? Well, you got to know his love for you. That's what the Bible says in 1 John. We love him because he first loved us. We have love in general because he first loved us. You can't love him until you know how loved you are by him. But what I want us to focus in on here in this passage is is the guy who asked the question and what he says next. Verse 32, well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other. Hey, you are a man of integrity. It doesn't matter who's asking the question. And you do tell the truth and what you're saying is accurate to God's word. And then he says to love him. And notice he doesn't quote it back the exact same way Jesus said it. Maybe he's using the English Standard Version or something. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding. Oh, that doesn't say understanding before. With all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus takes this verse from Deuteronomy. takes this verse from Leviticus. They go together for us. But a lot of people have never heard them together before. But then notice what he says next. Because Jesus didn't say this. This is what the guy says is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now pause, pause right there. Remember who this is. Teacher of the law. Who's in charge of the temple? Chief priest, elders, teacher of the law. What did, Je- what did Jesus just do yesterday? Flipped over the tables in the temple? There's two to maybe 2.7 million people here for the Passover. It's Passover week. He knows his buddies have set up these questions to try and kill Jesus. And he doesn't say that loving God is equal to sacrifices. 
Because some people could at least, that's at least palatable. He says, it's more important. You came to end empty religion, to give authentic relationship, and I'm aligning myself with you, Jesus. This guy's a teacher of the law. He's putting his life on the line. Talk about a submissive spirit. Hey, this might cost me my family. I'm probably out of a job. My reputation is ruined. I don't care because I actually want what's right. And I think you might be right, Jesus. And I'm going with you. Sincere question, a submissive heart. And look what Jesus says next. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far. You're not in yet. But you're headed down the right path. You're not far from, and here it says kingdom of God, but don't let that just be religious language. Kingdom of God means the reign of God, the rule of God in your life. You're not far from the rule of God in your life. And from then on, no one dared ask any more questions. (laughs) Because who knows what it'll cost them? Who knows what it'll reveal about them? What about your questions? I don't need to know what they are, but God knows what you wrote down. God knows what you thought of. God knows what your real questions were. Are your questions hypocritical questions? If so, I just challenge you to get honest. Don't hide behind theology. Don't hide your, if you love your sin more than you love God, just be, at least be honest about it. Are, you, are they ignorant questions? God's already answered them for you in his word. Are you ignorant of his power and how he's working around you? Maybe he's not doing what you want him to do, but do you see what he is doing? Are they honest questions? sincere questions that are seeking him and submissive to him. Those kinds of questions are questions like, God, what's most important to you in my life? Not just will you do what I want you to do. What's most important to you? What do you want me to do next? What are my next steps of faith? Those are sincere questions. Let me pray for us. Father, I come before you and I ask that that we would be a church of people that would ask honest questions. Sometimes that's hard and sometimes it'll, it'll get messy. Because those questions aren't always pretty, like we see in the Psalms. And some of us, that's what we're experiencing. Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you cured this? Why haven't you healed? Why haven't you fixed? Why do I have so much torment? What is this battle? And God, I don't know all the answers to those questions, but we know you do. And so we come to you, hopefully with honest questions. And we come to you, and I, I hope some people that are asking questions to really hide what's happening in their hearts, that you would confront their sin, convict their sin, and they would turn to you in repentance and, and come to you today to know you as Savior, or, or those that have been walking down a path that's headed for discipline, that you change that path. And for those of us who are asking genuine questions of submission, sometimes the answers are hard to grapple with, and what is the next step, and what does it look like, and how do you want us to, and how do we be faithful? And maybe the answer is just really simple sometimes. You want us to love you. You want to take the next step and you're not going to show us what 10 steps are from now but you're going to show us the next step and God we walk by faith with you and we want to love you with all that we are but we don't always do that and we love other things and that means you don't have all of us and, and Father will you just have us love you more we reveal your love to us more it's in Jesus name I pray